Welcome to Hear Me, My Voice, My Story, a post-conviction victim services podcast. These podcasts were produced by the State of Hawaii Crime Victim Compensation Commission. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in these podcasts are those of the contributors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the Hawaii Department of Public Safety, the Hawaii Paroling Authority, the Crime Victim Compensation Commission, the State of Hawaii Department of the Attorney General, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Hear Me, My Voice, My Story, the post-conviction victim services podcast produced by the Hawaii Crime Victim Compensation Commission in cooperation with the Hawaii Paroling Authority. The purpose of the Hear Me podcast is to bring awareness to justice professionals, advocates, victims, survivors, and communities about the opportunities for victim survivors to participate in post-conviction processes that affect their safety and their healing journey. That is why we are so excited today to have Dennis Dunn with us. My co-host, Don Martin, and I cannot wait to tell you a little bit about him and then to hear from him himself. Dennis is the director of the Victim Witness Kakula Services, a division of the Honolulu Prosecutor's Office, a position that he has held since 1985. He was previously employed with the Prosecutor's Office in various positions as victim advocate from 1979 to 1985. He's also served on a variety of state and local boards, committees, and task forces relating to crime victims' issues and services during his 44 years as a victim advocate in Hawaii. So please help me and my co-host, Don Martin, welcome our friend Dennis. And Don, I'm going to toss it to you. All right. So Dennis, I want you to talk to us a little bit about how a victim might come about receiving services from BW Kakua. Well, I think that's a really good question to ask because uh, victims come to our office in a variety of ways. For the most part, it depends on what type of case that we're talking about. So for most misdemeanor victims, and I think this is different than any of the other victim witness assistance programs in Hawaii, um, but for misdemeanor victims, if an individual has been the victim of a crime in a misdemeanor case and the police have made a report but not made an arrest, the individual is referred to our program for assistance in completing the process of filing a criminal complaint um, and receiving services. So they actually are referred to us by the, uh, the Honolulu Police Department for a dual purpose. It's a little bit of a challenge for that reason because we want to try to sort of be holistic and comprehensive in terms of what we're doing to help the victim. But a lot of them actually call us being somewhat focused on the criminal justice objective. In other words, I want to prosecute this person um, for whatever the crime is that occurred. The individuals who call our office about a misdemeanor complaint almost always are talking first to our intake unit. And we developed an intake unit basically to handle our misdemeanor complaints and to handle any individual who's not already connected with a victim witness counselor so that anybody who calls us would have somebody that they can speak to and be able to address their needs as quickly as possible. Because as you might imagine, with the amount of criminal cases we have uh, in Honolulu, it's pretty significant. And so our domestic violence and our felony counselors they're pretty much tied up in court a lot in interviews and so on. So they're, they're not always available. 
So the idea of the intake unit was to have someone available all the time to be able to speak to them. A misdemeanor complaint is actually somewhat of a complex process. And so the interesting thing is for a misdemeanor case, our victims probably get more interaction over time with our victim witness counselors, both of their personal individual support needs, as well as involved, very involved with the criminal justice processing of their case. So they're like at the very beginning of the the prosecution of a case, whereas other types of cases that come in that are referred to us, a criminal prosecution typically has already started. So for a domestic violence case, either an arrest and charge has been made, or if an arrest and charge has not been filed, the police on a regular basis will send us all of the cases that they completed a report. In other words, the investigation is complete, but they did not make an arrest. They will refer all those cases to us also. So in a misdemeanor case, we're having a situation where they're actually involved in processing a complaint. Typically for a DV case, although not all of them, um, we're going to have someone who's already been charged. In felony cases, we're normally going to have a situation, number one, where either an arrest has been made and a um, preliminary hearing is scheduled because there's a suspect in custody and has to go to a preliminary, preliminary hearing within 48 hours, or the case is being reviewed by a prosecutor and it's going to go to the grand jury. Usually there's already been a fair amount of criminal justice processing interaction with both law enforcement and our prosecutors before the case gets referred to our uh, victim witness counselors. And we typically call our victim witness counselors our victim advocates. I'm only using the term victim witness counselor as the official term. And I think it's helpful to identify that in part because there are a variety of meanings for the term advocate, also for the term counselor. And uh, neither of them actually works perfectly. So I, I believe that our our victim advocates feel that they're advocates for the victims, but they do work in the prosecuting attorney's office. So working in the prosecuting attorney's office means that you are serving a function as part of the prosecution team. And so we, even very upfront on our first conversation with victims, will often try to clarify that for them. We're gonna be your advocate for the system, but we do work for the system. And so don't be confused um, that we're, we can, we're not a pure advocate for you, like someone who might work with the Sex Abuse Treatment Center or the Domestic Violence Action Center or some other community-based um, victim assistance program. And um, so that, that's kind of an important clarification. And, and the process happens, happens a little bit differently depending on the type of case. Now, as I mentioned for the misdemeanor case, um, the victim is contacting us usually not always because we do get unsolicited cases. How and why we get them, we've never been able to quite figure out, but the police report shows up. And if we get the report, we will do outreach to them. I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not always certain how and why the case got here, but if the individual's case comes here, we're gonna do something to try to help them out. Some of the cases that come in on that, through that way, uh, although misdemeanors, I mean, let me sort of clarify one thing from sort of from the start here is that our perspective is that no matter how the criminal justice system classifies your case, misdemeanor, petty misdemeanor, felony, you know, uh, class A, B or C felony, your crime for you is always serious, 
regardless of what the classification is. And the challenge is getting the rest of the system to sort of understand and appreciate and approach the victim from the same same viewpoint. And, and that's often difficult. Um, although I often use some examples um, when talking to people, including doing training for law enforcement, is that from the perspective of the victim, it's something that happened to me and it may be totally life-changing, even if it's a petty misdemeanor, for example. So my best ex case example of that is years ago, uh, the Sex Abuse Treatment Center referred a woman to me. She had uh, worked for someone um, as a live-in housekeeper for many years. And um, one evening as she was getting ready for bed, she looked out her window and she saw her employer looking through the window, watching her undress. And she was very upset. She called the police. The police actually came and did a pretty good investigation. They looked outside her window, discovered that the that her uh, that her employer, the person that she lived with, had apparently been outside that window many times because they could see all of the vegetation and stuff was worn away. It was clearly that someone had been standing there, and the the case was investigated at, initially as a trespass. Um, as it turned out. There was no trespass because it was his own property. At that point in time, there was no crime associated with looking through someone's witch window, uh, watching them undress, and particularly if it's on your own property. But this woman was totally devastated. She lost her place to live because she felt she had to move out of there. She lost her employment, and she totally lost her trust in the individual who had betrayed her. So the 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 social worker who had referred it to me said you know i've worked with a lot of victims and this woman is as traumatized as any victim of a full-on sexual assault and she said it was a lesson to me and she said i will make the point to you that i'm not sure what we can do for this woman but she is as badly victimized and traumatized as any victim of any felony case and she said I had a hard time initially explaining to the police detective, but the police detective actually got it. And he apologized to us that there wasn't anything that the criminal justice system could do for her. And one of the things that I've always tried to impress on our victim witness counselors is that regardless of what the system is, can do for someone, it's critical that we support that victim in getting other support services. So support services in, in recovering from whatever the crime might be, because the trauma level is not a connected to the crime. So we yeah, try to I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I, I I'm so glad you said that because I think we have to move beyond the damage done to a victim can never be connected or related to the classification or the nature of the offense and how we classify it. And that when we begin to um, measure the damage done to a victim based on what the justice system says it should be we've already re-traumatized or re-victimized that victim because they're not defining that. I, I'm, I'm just so glad you said that. I was listening to you and I was cheering back here. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, no, it, it's a critical point because, um, and, and the other thing is that um, we're part of the system. Uh, we want the system to be successful. Uh, it's often not successful in the perspective from the perspective of you know gaining a conviction or for some victims such as in this case even filing a charge 
wasn't as it turned out a possibility. Um, but what we try to encourage victims to do is to look at their success not from the outcome of the criminal case, but the outcome for you as a person who is a survivor recovering uh, from some type of victimization. Um, and, and again, regardless of what the particular crime category is, you know, your experience is your experience and you know and appreciate what the damage that's done. And we need to take a look and see, okay, what, what sort of, again, sort of comprehensively and holistically looking at all, how this has affected your life as well as, okay, what are your needs? And, you know, I'll be real honest with you. Most people, the first thing they need is not to be have someone successfully prosecuted. They have a whole list of other needs, housing, counsel, counseling, uh, financial recovery, all these kind of things, some of which the criminal justice system can help with. Some, the criminal justice system can't do a darn thing for them. So true. And Dennis, I wanted to touch on an example of actually where your program and my program were able to kind of collaborate on just having basic needs um, where it's not necessarily part of the criminal process. Um, but we had I had a, a victim that came to our program that was going to court hearings and she was asked to be at the court hearing kind of last minute but she has three kids and she didn't know what she was supposed to do. And so I immediately got on the phone with you and was just like, what do we do? Is there any childcare? And between your program and our program and DVAC, we were able to find her childcare. All of us were like right there immediately trying to give her the supports that she needs just to get through to the court hearing, you know, the first step. So you're right. There's so many needs that they have that aren't just like criminal proceeding pieces. It's, it's, you know, the holistic, it's you as a human being, what are your needs so that we can get you successfully moving forward? So that is, a per, that. that is a perfect example because uh, so many of the victims that we work with need childcare. And not only just child care for the criminal justice process, which is kind of critical in terms of what we're working with them on, but child care is a, a need in the community, broad spread across all, I mean, every single group that you could think of, whether uh, we're talking about the richest people or the poorest people, child care is an issue. And, and I think one of the challenges of the criminal justice system is we we as the, the victim advocates need to be prepared to advocate um, for more services, again, for the victims as part of the community and the community needs. And so sometimes, and I know occasionally I get you know, asked about the, what does this have to do with prosecution or the prosecutor's office and so on. And I'm saying, listen, if we want people to be in a position where they're going to cooperate and work with us, we've got to identify and uh, try to, if, if we can't find and try to develop resources that can make it possible for them to do that, as well as the resources to, to, I guess, develop a strategy for recovery. Although, you know, a lot of the people that we deal with, we're talking about recovery. Well, the situation that they were in before a lot of times is not real great because as we know, many of the people who are targeted for crime are people already who have difficulties, people with a substance abuse problem, people who live in poverty, 
people who've committed crimes themselves or have a criminal record. Um, you know, th these are the people that uh, are targeted because of the most vulnerable. And so when people come to us, they come to us with a whole host of different problems and issues. And we have to develop um, or be at least part of the process of developing resources with, or finding resources. Maybe sometimes they're out there, like in the case you cited. Maybe sometimes they're not. And and we need to we need to work on that. That, that well, that's part of I, I consider our responsibility. And I think you just really hit on some things, and that's that Maslow's hierarchy, right? If somebody doesn't know where they're going to sleep next or where their next meal is going to be, the last thing that they're concerned about is whether or not they're um, a good witness, right, to the prosecution or whatever is happening. And we forget about meeting the needs of those that have been harmed, the basic needs that they have first. Um, because the, I, I once had somebody say to me who was, was a victim survivor, this is the criminal justice system. It's not the victim justice system. And if it was the victim justice system, we would be asking those that have been harmed, what do you need first? And then let's figure out how this system then plays into holding someone accountable and the justice piece. But, but we don't do that. And so I think you just, you, you, said that so eloquently better than I could. And, and I'm just, yes, you're yes, yes, yes. Um, what I always tell people is that it's not much of a system. There's unfortunately very little justice, but it sure is criminal. Right. Right. Exactly. And no one is at this point. Um, uh, we have to think about what does somebody need to be able to move from point A to point B and be, be, um, able to heal and, and, or be made whole. And the system oftentimes doesn't do that. So Dennis, let me ask you this question. You talked a little bit about it, but what part of the actual criminal proceedings does your office help with? Like if you were to look from beginning to end, how does your office play? What role does your office play in that? I think that, that more than anything else, we're um, like tour guides. In other words, if you were going to a foreign country, you didn't know the language, you didn't know the customs, you didn't know your way around, that really is what we are for victims in the criminal justice system. And in some ways, it's a bit different than other types of advocates out in the community because we really are focused on trying to help guide people through the criminal justice process. We want to try to avoid further traumatization. So the very basics when we start out, okay, what is the criminal justice system all about? What is the process? How does it work? And for, from a victim's perspective, what is their role? What are we expecting from them? And they need to know that the system is not focused on them and their needs, that they're often not going to understand uh, the process itself. It's not going to, it's, number one, it's not going to make sense. It's not logical. And it's not like it is on TV. Um, on television, the crime is committed, the suspect is identified, they get arrested, they get charged, and they go to trial, they get convicted within an hour. In our criminal justice system, we have some cases, um, especially more serious cases, domestic or violence, sexual assault, and homicide, for example. Sometimes the cases take for years. I just you know, had a, a very upset parent who was trying to get legislation passed because her daughter's case 
her daughter's sexual assault case took more, more than four years to work through the system. And her daughter had, you know, gone from a young girl to being a preteen to being a teen in the process of this whole case. And, you know, we're, we're asking people to, to invest their lives in this process. And yet we don't really prepare them, I don't think, as well as we could for what they're going to anticipate. So I do think the role of explaining the system and what's going to happen to them and what is their role is really critical. So that first part is just clear up basic information about the system. The next part is information about their particular case. And so what we're going to do after we've explained what the, the process of the system and how it works and what to expect is what's going to happen to your case. So is your case being charged? Um, is it not being charged? Is a prosecutor decided there's not enough evidence and your case is being no action? Why was it no action? If it has been charged, is your case involved someone already being arrested? Is there, like I said, for felonies, there's a preliminary hearing required within 48 hours. So for that type of victim, they're often going to have to face their offender face-to-face -face in the courtroom within a very short time period after the crime occurred. That's a much different situation than for our cases that um, are accepted pending reports and review, which means that the prosecutor said, we're going to take a look at this case. We think maybe we can file charges, but it's going to take a while. And it may take months, sometimes even years, for some of our cases to be investigated. And so the victim is more than anything else is going to be have to be informed. You're going to have to be patient. This is going to take a long time and let them know up front. So, for example, you know, some of our complicated sexual assault cases, especially involving children, they're normally not going to take them for, to a preliminary hearing. They're going to be, and oftentimes the perpetrator is a, a someone known to them, a family member, a friend, or whatever, or a coach or a teacher or something. So these cases take uh, a while to investigate, and we also don't want to expose a child, um, you know, to that fun confrontation with the offender right away because it's going to be challenging. Most of those cases are not going to go, you know, straight ahead to charging they're going to go to grand jury and that being said especially with covid um it may take quite a while before the case even makes it to the grand jury so the child and the parent need to understand up front it's going to take a while um so what i'm hearing you say is that you're you're laying out a very realistic um kind of game plan so that there isn't like they're not they're not surprises when something happens in the process, which cause can in itself cause trauma or different needs that maybe you didn't think about. You guys are really, really kind of laying out best case scenario, worst case scenario and some realistic timelines. Is that kind of what your role we is? We're really trying hard to do that, because um, if we don't do that, um, victims tend to be uh, very disappointed, disillusioned um become uncooperative um or just angry or hurt right or hurt further because the system has now caused just as much or maybe more trauma than i wouldn't say more than the offense but people will say i we kind of thought you know we know this person could cause harm we didn't think the system itself could cause additional harm and i just i love the how you just talked about the fact that you're realistic 
with them about what they might be up against. And I don't think that always happens. In all fairness and to be effective, we need to be able to do that and be honest yeah. with them. And it's challenging because, um, you know, our our boss is a publicly elected official and you want to put the best face on everything. Right. But, um, you know, for the from the victim's perspective, there's not really a great face on the criminal justice process. So, you know, we want people to be prepared. At the same time, we want to continue to be able to um, make referrals for the services that they might need. Um, oftentimes, re-referring them. Um, also, I, I think it, to be effective, a lot of times you got to do a warm handoff, meaning that you might get somebody on the phone and say, you know what, let me call up Dawn right now while we're talking. And let's have a conversation with her. I want to introduce you to her. Um, I think that she can help you out. Um, you know, that I think is a, a critical part that we're learning more and more is critical for people to really get connected for services. Now, that's not always possible and easy to do that. Um, it's a process we're always trying to improve. But I do think that to the extent that we're all working together as a community to help support victims, the more successful they're going to be, especially in terms of their long-term recovery um, and, and meeting their needs. And as you talked right. before about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we've got a whole you know, list of, and you know, we have, may have situations where um, people's situations change over time and you know, their needs may vary significantly. They may start out, for example, um, mostly just want information. Um, they may end up having medical or mental, emotional, psychological problems, you know, that develop possibly as a result of the crime or a result of other experiences going on in their lives. And so we need to prepare to deal with all that. Um, I know a lot of times, you know, the prosecutors sometimes um, ask us to sort of wonder, where do you get all these victims from? They have all these problems. And we're going like, <laughs> the victims had problems before they ever got involved. They didn't volunteer, raise their hand, say, I'd like to be a victim. Right. They have, right. often have people who are out there looking for them as a vulnerable person, whether it be a, a, a close intimate crime, such as a, by a family member, or whether it be when you're out, you know, you're an elderly person going to the bus stop. And it's like, hey, that person looks like an easy target. And so, you know, we have to understand that they're going to come to us as they are and with all these needs. And you have to be prepared to acknowledge and um, when necessary, try to do something about it. Now, right. and, and, and I think you hit something really important there. And that is that that changes, right? This is not a static set of needs that victims very have. Dynamic. It's very dynamic and that and that we have to be willing to step back and say, this isn't our agenda. It is what are your needs? And, and I'm hearing from you that that's something that you and your, your staff work hard at. Um, so Dennis, I thought you made such a great analogy about how you're kind of like a, a, a travel guide in a foreign country where people don't know where they're going. They don't know how to navigate. They don't know the language that was, that's so great. So I'm just curious, how do you, um, teach victims or inform them of what their rights are during the criminal proceedings piece? Start off by saying most victims are not aware they have any rights. Um, and often it doesn't seem like they do in part because um, all 
all of the feedback they get, um, you know, from the beginning of an investigation, for example, is always on the rights of the accused. And, you know, I, I know that police a lot of times are trying to be realistic with people, but sometimes um, the victim comes like, I'm sick and tired of hearing about all the rights the defendants have. You know, why do the defendants have all the rights? And so we go, totally. well, the defendants don't have all the rights. They do have rights, but, you know, in understanding why it's so important for victims to have rights, um, I do use another analogy, and that is like, if you take a look at offenders, we all know what are the rights of the offenders and what is it? Oh, guess what? Right to be, um, the right to uh, remain silent, the right to have an attorney, all these kind of things, because they see it on television. Every Everybody everybody knows. I mean, when I ever ask that question, like if I go out to speak and everybody knows exactly what it is that, that, that you as an accused have rights to. Right. Or at least the basic understanding of it. But then if I say, well, what rights do victims have? And they're going, well, I have a right to prosecute somebody. Well, <laughs> I go, you know what? You actually don't. But within the system, <laughs> within the system, we over the years, and I've seen it develop, it's very, very exciting. Probably one of the most exciting parts of my career is to see those rights develop over time. But the very first thing is the right to information. So, in other words, you have a right to understand the criminal justice process, to have someone explain it to you. So chapter 801D of the Hawaii Revised Statutes makes it very clear that um, someone must be available to explain to you what the criminal justice process is. Um, and so that that is where we focus, as I mentioned, initially helping people understand the system itself. Because, you know, without, it's just like the criminal. If a criminal doesn't know that they have a right to remain silent, what are they going to do? They're going to blab away and say anything that, they right. might incriminate themselves, right? Yeah. So for the victim to be informed about participating in the process, we want them to know, okay, these are your rights. This is the process. So they have a right to that. The second part um, I like to refer to as rights of participation. So the first is rights to information. The next is right to participation. And so basically what that amounts to is Along the way in the criminal justice process, we've dealt, developed a variety of different points where the victim input is required. I think that the most notable is at the very beginning. In other words, that is the right to be informed about plea agreements and to have input for felonies in Hawaii. If there is a decision made on a prosecution, then the victim must be informed and have the opportunity to provide input. The victim is not able to decide whether or not to prosecute. In other words, they're not going to be the final say of whether a case is prosecuted or not. Um, they can't charge somebody. They can't, you know, decide, you know, this is a misdemeanor or a felony, but they can at least voice their opinion to the prosecuting attorney on what they'd like to see happen with their case. And That's along with that, they have a right to be informed of what the outcome might be. So if the case ends, for example, with the police investigation and the police decide there's not enough information to even send it to the prosecutor's office, then they have a right to be informed the case has been closed at the investigation stage. If the prosecutor has received the case and decided not to prosecute, 
they have a right to be notified of that outcome. Now, again, this only applies in felony cases. On our part, we try as much as possible to make sure that all victims that we're interacting with, number one, understand you know that they can voice their opinion, even if it's not in the statute, but we're gonna give you that opportunity. So part of our role is to give them that opportunity and for input and very much so the outcome of your particular case. So if the case ends early because the prosecutor doesn't charge, we do our best to make sure that all the victims are notified that that's the outcome. Now, this may not apply to every single case because we're mostly focused on violent crimes, um, except for those cases that, like I said, are referred to us for a penal summons complaint. They want to initiate a prosecution. The police haven't arrested someone for a misdemeanor. And so in those cases, we're very much involved with the the right up front part of the case, but we have many felony cases where a decision is made by the police to close the case or by the prosecutor, and um, it may not actually get as far as you know our our victim witness counselor is getting involved. So we're we're trying more and more to be able to sort of uh, integrate our services in that process um, with at the police level, especially on fel- on felonies. So, for example, we work closely with uh, victim advocates who work for they are they're also victim witness counselors at the Honolulu Police Department for felony domestic violence and felony sexual assault. They have advocates there now who work supporting victims. And so we try to help um, them to be able to inform uh, victims about what the outcome of the case is if it's not going to proceed to prosecution, because most of our cases we're involved are. We were involved with their, there's active prosecution going on. So the other part of the participation is not, uh, not only in part of being informed, but also, okay, how do I actively become part of the process? So sort of moving ahead, um, if we get a case that's going to, um, the case has been prosecuted successfully, either meaning it's gone to trial, there's a conviction at trial, or we have a plea agreement, victims do have a right to have input prior to sentencing. Um, In many cases, it may be simply by submitting a statement, but all circuit court cases, the victims have a right to appear in court, in person, and make a statement prior to an individual being sentenced. And as I said before, to me, that level is called the rights of participation. It means that the victim has a specific role it's outlined in the law, and the victim can participate in the process in the same way that the offender is in the sense that they they have a specific role and have a right to be able to fulfill that role. Um, not all victims want to appear and make that statement. Um, and like I said, unfortunately, it's only guaranteed to them on felony level cases, but for a lot of cases on the misdemeanor level or um I'm on the misdemeanor level, either in district or family court, a lot of the judges will allow victims to make a statement before sentencing. The the statement of sentencing um, is a victim's right. It is not, they do not appear as a witness at sentencing. So just the way, the same way that a defendant can make a statement saying whatever they want to at sentencing, that they're sorry, that they're not sorry, that you know, they've had a terrible life and, you know, they should feel sorry for me and have mercy on me. Um, they may 
make up things and you know emphasize things that may not make any sense but it's their statement so the victim owns their own statement so within reasonable limits in other words they're not allowed to scream and yell at defendants or swear at them and things like that but they're allowed to say okay this is what happened to me this is what the effect of the crime is on me and we help them up by providing a sort of a template, a victim impact statement that they're provided with. Um, some choose to sort of just follow down the list of all the questions that we ask and all the areas that we look at, the financial, the emotional, the, the physical effects. Um, and in some cases, we'll focus even on the spiritual effects of the crime on the victim. So sometimes they may just follow the form and say, okay, this is what happened. Other victims want to more really just tell my story. And so we just give them a basic guideline and they write their own narrative. Many of the victims, when they make a statement in court, do the same thing. They're providing a narrative about what happened to them. And so that role, that participatory role and that participatory right is critical because it makes it feel the victim feel like I have a part in the process. I am just as important as the defendant, the judge or the prosecutor in this system. Exactly. Now, now maybe, you know, they don't control things so that, 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 that aspect, they're not in charge in terms of they can say what happens, but they get a voice and the victim's yeah. voice is critical in the process, not only in terms of for the victim's perspective, but from the perspective of the integrity of our system, a system which lacks victim's voice never has the real justified title of being a criminal justice system. There is no justice without a victim voice. Yeah. So that's why that role of participation is so critical. Yeah, activating, helping victims activate their voices, you know, one of our goals at our program too, just you had you, you did such a great job of doing an overview of like what the rights are during this process and that victims do have times that they could, they get information, they get to participate, they get to understand decisions and outcomes and just be active in the whole process. Um, so thank you for clearing, clearing that up. And, and hopefully that's a little bit um, clear process for those of our listeners that are out there right now. Um, and finally, I just kind of wanted to grow into, um, we talked a lot about, you know, the proceedings, the criminal proceedings, um, but what do you guys do once they're convicted? What kind of post-conviction services um, or referrals do you guys provide for your victims? Well, I think that's a, a, a very important and critical question because, of course, um, the victim's involvement with the system does not end uh, with uh, sentencing. Um, I think that's a huge point, yes. <laughs> the case, um, the, I'm sorry, the, the sentencing may involve a, um, a long list of conditions. And um, some or maybe even many of the conditions involve the victim. So right up front, one of the most critical parts of the system, as far as I'm concerned, is restitution. Restitution is something which basically, um, and although it, it may seem uh, that it's not adequate, it does put a monetary value, um, uh, makes concrete the harm done to the victim, 
and puts a concrete responsibility on the offender to try to make the victim whole. Exactly. And while, you know, you say, well, victims need a lot more than that. And they do need a lot more than that. But I just think yes. as far as the significance for the victim and the offender, restitution means offenders taking responsibility and victims being restored financially. Yes. At the same time, I think many victims feel that they're, they're being restored, um, you know, on, on a level of the psychological, emotional restoration if they feel the offender is taking responsibility by paying restitution. Um, and quite honestly, I think for a lot of victims, uh, you hear a lot of platitudes by defendants at sentencing about how sorry they are. And, you know, they really feel badly that this happened and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The proof is in the pudding. And, you know, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but money talks and bullshit walks. So <laughs> offenders that sit there and go on and on at sentencing is very means nothing to the victim unless there's some kind of concrete, concrete consequences for that. So if the victim is receiving restitution, even if it's over a period of time, um, they feel like the offender is taking responsibility and that there's a level of restoration happening and it goes beyond the monetary value. Now, the challenging piece about that, as you well know, is that restitution for many victims can take a long time. Uh, if offenders in custody, they may not have the ability to pay a lot of money, although, as you know, and which is critical, victims have a right to receive restitution from offenders while they're in custody. Um, I might say that um, many of our victims probably get consistently more restitution in terms of ongoing payments if the offender is in custody than if they're out <laughs> and on probation because they're, yeah. they're, they're basically forced to pay the restitution and take that responsibility. But right. to me, again, a critical part of our criminal justice system, if a person is incarcerated, is they're getting that message consistently across the board, you must take financial responsibility for the victim. That's a given. That's sort of a base, you know, for your responsibility is it's not just this imprisonment, you know, and that this is somehow the consequence, but you have a financial obligation and you're not relieved of that financial obligation just because you're in custody. So I think that that's real critical. The other part of this is that the victim, just like when they're approaching, how is this case going to be charged? And when is it going to trial? You know, what's going to happen in court? It's like, well, what's happened to this offender after the sentencing? Um, I see all these conditions. How do I know what happened? And so a critical part of working with victims is helping to keep them informed about what the outcome of some of these conditions might be. Now, some of it's a matter of what's happened to that. Did they fulfill some of that? conditions for their counseling. And of course, I mentioned we, they want their interest in what happened regarding restitution. But we do try to, as much as possible, keep them informed about whether or not the offender is relying uh, or um, um, complying with the conditions set down by the court. Now, this is fairly simple in many ways if the individual has a, a year or two to comply with the conditions. And for certain types of cases, uh, most often in family and district court, there is a proof of compliance date. And so the nice thing is the offender is going to have to appear in court usually within a year 
um, and show that they've complied with the conditions. And um, so there's an incentive for them to show up because they might get an additional sentence or you know they're gonna have some additional compliance issues if the, they have failed to comply with the conditions. And so we try to keep the victim informed, um, stay engaged with them in that respect. The challenge, and again, as you were familiar, <laughs> as much as anyone else, is for the long-term incarceration, the individual who's been in custody over a long period of time, um, it's not as easy to be able to keep informed. Um, the nice thing that we have during our current pro our part of our current process is we have an automated victim notification system. And if they're signed up for that system, they can automatically be notified over time um, of the offender's custody status. Um, yeah, our next podcast is actually with Seven and Rimaatun, so. <laughs> well, that, that's critically important again, because what did I say from the beginning? The most important thing is information. And yeah. they need to understand and know what's happening. And that doesn't end when the sentencing is completed. It goes on for a long period of time. Now, the, the challenge, of course, um, is that we may not be in regular contact with them for over those many years. Um, and also victims may themselves become, you know, detached from their experience. But yeah. as soon as they get a notice that something is happening, the individual's up for parole, um, they're up for consideration for supervised release or uh, work furlough, um, all of these things then start bringing up issues for victims. And um, we do, number one, try to keep Keep, in, keep them informed of when these are happening and when they're getting notifications, we may be getting notifications too, but some of the challenge for some of that is that the notifications that were originally set up, especially those that involve the SAVIN system, is that our advocates who may, be a, who may have been set up for notification on that, they may have moved on. <laughs> and so the challenge is to be able to have a system available to a system once that process takes place and when those concerns come up. And of course, that's where your role certainly has been come, become critical because we may have some level of contact with them, but um, their direct contact with the person who originally helped, with, helped them in our office may not be there. And right. they may need someone to hold their hand um, you know, through some of this which we're not always as not disconnected. We may not have the, the time and the ability to do that because they're not as actively involved with the system. Now, we will accompany them to any uh, parole minimum hearing. So at the beginning of the parole process, we'll support them um, if they're going to be um, not, that they, normally they don't speak at parole hearings, but they may be able to participate or observe it, of course, right now, a lot of that is done either over the telephone or some other kind of uh, platform that they can participate in the process. So we'll be with them in that process and supporting them. But they have, a, as you know, thousands of questions about the whole process and what's going to happen, what's going on. And um, and again, but I think that's where where we did such a good job of bridging that gap and developing this post-conviction program through HPA and CVCC. And we're able to work so closely with victim witness Kakua and, you know, our two offices work so well together and we're always in connection and always talking. So it really helps the victim feel 
like there's a seamless support system for them where they don't have to keep retelling their story, right? They don't have to keep doing the same stuff, be re-traumatized. We can just kind of do that seamless handoff, yeah, for the well, and the individual, their needs, again, don't stop. Right. When the criminal case <laughs> stops. So we may need to reinitiate referrals. Um, again, um, you know, getting a someone to hold their hand being referred back out to the community. In fact, I, I think I think what we really need to develop is a um, uh, a, a core of psychological, emotional support for victims who are involved in the process years after the crime occurred, because for for many victims, that brings back the original trauma. Um, the recovery that they may have gone through emotionally, emotionally and psychologically may be tested when suddenly um, the offender may be released or just the bringing the whole thing up again. Right. And get them back sometimes in the same place that they were years yeah. ago. Um, and I think it's made more challenging because a lot of times they, their family, friends, coworkers, and so on may have no idea about what happened to them. Right. So even the matter of contacting them, and I've had this happen, and you, I'm sure, have experienced some of this already too, is that um, my husband, my family, my friends, they don't know about this. They don't know what happened to me. Um, and so I can't talk to them. Or if they want to talk to them, they don't know how to talk to them. Or sometimes they'll even ask, can you help me explain what happened? Um, because I don't remember and I don't understand, I don't really understand what happened. And so right. again, understanding the process is yeah. critical. And they yeah. may need help understanding that process all over again, including understanding, okay, what's going to happen now? You told me 10 or 20 years ago about what's going to happen now, but I don't remember what happened. And I'd sort of forgotten about this and I put my life back together, but suddenly this is all, you know, putting me back in that same place again. Um and they, they need a lot of support. So I, I think that we we need a, um, a way to find, find support services that address the, you know, the psychological, emotional, mental health needs of victims who are contacted years later and um, suddenly are back in the system. And, um, you know, they may or may not have done that well the first time around, but um, being thrown back into it, oftentimes not really expecting it, maybe intentionally that they didn't want to think about it right um, but yeah, then yeah. if they asked to be notified or they were signed up for seven then suddenly it's thrust in their consciousness again and, yeah um again the original crime you know they didn't ask for it and they're not prepared for it Right. But I think you bring up such a perfect leeway into our call for action. Every podcast, we do a call for action to our listeners of what they can do right now to be an active participant in supporting victims of crime. And I think you hit something really important is just having more support systems for psychological support, our basic needs that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. And I just really think, you know, that call to action is, is important. And I hope there's agencies out there and people that step up to start providing this for victims so it's more of a victim-centered system than the criminal 
focused system. Um, and the last thing I just wanted to talk about real quickly um, with you, Dennis, is, you know, you and your staff and all of us work so hard with these advocates to make sure that they are healthy and happy and getting through the process. You know, that takes a toll on us sometimes when we're always working and, and working after hours sometimes on emergencies. So what are some things that you have done for yourself throughout your career to make sure that you stay kind of centered and healthy enough to provide the services we can provide to our to the victims of the community? It's been a challenge for me in some ways because um, I went from being a very active, hands-on victim advocate, frontline worker, to being an administrator. Um, and then years later, being thrown into a new role as a handler for our courthouse dog, and originally Pono and today Clover. Um, and I must say that it's been the most rewarding thing that I've seen in my career in victim assistance is utilizing these dogs to support victims. But you know what? It supports us an awful lot too. And so that's been a critical piece, especially as I've had to, after years of not working directly with victims, sitting in interviews, listening to young children talk about, uh, you know, adults doing the most terrible things you can imagine, or hearing a teenager who was thrust into a terrible situation. Um, just recently, in fact, just yesterday, we were in court with a victim who was sexually assaulted in school. And so it's a challenge to figure out where to put all that. Having Clover here has made a big difference. Outside of the office, um, unfortunately, it's not available right now. But um, I took up figure skating uh, about uh, 24 years ago when uh, I was turning 50. And uh, oh, wow. critical for me uh, going skating and um, I became a volunteer skating instructor, worked with kids. Uh, my wife jokes around that um, I work with the, the um, four to seven-year-olds because they're on the same maturity level as I am. <laughs> but that finding an outside activity that you can really get involved with that you love to do, I think that's, that's a critical thing that you oh, exactly. have to find. And so whether it's running or knitting or... Oh, well, what an interesting little tidbit about you. I didn't know you were a figure skater. But yeah, I agree. If you can get into any activity to just let your brain go somewhere else um, and just be active. And yeah, I think that's very important as well. But Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your program and, and the system and things we can do better and things we do well and what warm handoffs look like and how we all can work together um, in a better way to support our victims in the community. So I really appreciate it. Um, well, and thank you for the opportunity. It's really been a pleasure. I enjoy working with you. Um, actually, that's been, again, one of the bright spots of my career is all the wonderful people I've worked with like yourself. Oh, yes, I agree. We have a good team. <laughs> All right, Dennis. Thank you very much. Wow, what a gift to hear from whom I refer to as the godfather of victim services in Hawaii. Thank you so much to both of you for the incredible gifts that you've shared today in this episode. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, the goal of this podcast is to both inform and provide an opportunity for justice professionals, advocates, victims, 
and survivors to have a voice. So please consider bringing your voice, ideas, experiences, or stories to us so we can include you. If you have a question about something you heard today or an idea for a future episode, or if you have an idea for a guest that you'd like to suggest or would like to be a guest yourself, please contact us at postconvictionadvocate at hawaii.gov or at 808-358-8538. Remember, we would love to hear from you. And as Don Martin says, we rise by lifting others. You do that every single day. And we thank you. 